This is a recording made in the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals and this evening we are starting a new section dealing with the second coming of Christ. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and if you care to join us will you switch off for a little while and read with us Second Epistle of Peter chapters 2 and 3. We have brought to a conclusion, so far as this series is concerned, our examination of the teaching of Scripture under the heading, What is Man? We could have gone on and delved into more intimate details, but I fear that if we did, and perpetuated this study unduly, it would be a little bit out of proportion. We've got to remember that these are being recorded, and folks might feel they never get to the end of what is man. And now in the psalm with which we get our question, in which we find our question, what is man? It says he's made a little lower than the angels, which almost suggests by putting it that way that one day he is destined to be above them. And the psalm ends with the words, all things under his feet, which the apostle who knew the secret of Christ has taken to be an indication of the final, the uh, complete deliverance that he will effect, which necessitates that he who came to this earth in weakness to die is coming once again in mighty power to bring the whole thing through. So I felt that it would be a wise thing to make a move from some of these doctrinal statements And let prophecy have a place. There are some, of course, who rather scared about prophecy. Well, prophecy has never been written, not in the scriptures, to make you and me second-rate prophets. It's just to give us an indication to assure our hearts that God knows what he's doing and he knows the end from the beginning and also to help us to realise what a wonderful thing this Bible is, that God could commit himself hundreds, thousands of years before the event when it was most unlikely and then when the time comes, when the fullness of time comes, nothing, not even the power of Rome at the birth of Christ or the power of Antichrist at the end can prevent the consummation being reached. Well now you remember with regard to the the scriptures we go naturally to the New Testament for the statements concerning the second coming of Christ. But we do know this, that there are in the Old Testament scriptures indications that although he must come first to die, he must come in glory. And some of the Old Testament passages are linked together that you have no difference between them in time. We see a difference, but the difference wasn't made plain when the Old Testament prophets spoke of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. Now, that doesn't look as though 2,000 years is going to intervene, but it did. Well, now, how are we going to start this? Well, we have to adopt some method or the other. So, I'm going back to the Old Testament to see some of the coloration, as it were, the background, the way in which the second coming is indicated, so that we can bring that with us into the New Testament. I had a letter passed to me only just about a couple of hours ago 
where someone has quoted from the introductory words in the book called This Prophecy. I say that unless you have some working knowledge of Zechariah, Joel, Haggai, Amos, Jonah, uh, all the Old Testament prophets, you won't appreciate and understand as you should the figures that are used in the one book, the book of the Revelation. Well, this is our opportunity then to get a little idea, isn't it, of the colour that's in the Old Testament waiting, as it were, to illuminate the definite statements concerning the second coming in the New. So I turn to the little epistle of Jude, because in that epistle of Jude we have a reference back to the earliest statements that can be construed as prophesying what we call the second coming of Christ. Immediately before the book of the Revelation comes this small epistle. And in verse 14 we read these words. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, <coughs> the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Well, we should never have known that apart from Jude. Uh, there are statements in the apocryphal uh, book dealing with Enoch's statements which have been lifted out and put into the New Testament. Uh, this is one of them. And Enoch also. Now the first thing for us to think of is this. It's not possible, or not wise, to start straight away with, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. This is a part of an epistle, a short epistle truly, but it's put there in relationship with the rest of it. And the rest of it has a great many peculiar features about it that we do well to ponder. You cannot read Jude through without saying to yourself, but this is largely a repetition of what Peter put in his second epistle. Well, friends, if God has been pleased to use time and space to repeat himself, Instead of saying, well, I'm not going to bother about that, you ought to say, I reckon I ought to bother about it. Somebody said you go to the door more quickly, you know, if there's a double knock. Well, here's a double knock. He's saying the same thing from another point of view. And what a dreadful context it is. Will you notice some of the things which are introduced in this book of Jude that you will not find so expressed elsewhere? First of all, I would like to notice for your comfort and mine, that in the first verse, we have this word, preserved. And when we get to the end of the story, now unto him that is able to keep. Because the interval, there's some shocking things said, diabolical things said, and yet it starts and it ends on the note, he who saves you, can preserve you, and can keep you. So we'll leave that to work its way in our hearts as we go a bit further. Notice particularly how he picks out Old Testament features, verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people of, uh, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. He's put a very severe note there, you see. And then he says, I'll take you further. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. The word habitation there is oiketerion, the very self-same word which is used of the resurrection body of the believer. So he just said, it may refer back to Genesis 6 and parallel features. 
the angels which kept not their own first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, another example, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Then he picks up what Peter spoke about those who speak evil of dignities. Peter speaks about the angels generally. Enoch picks out one in particular. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Now we should know a word about this apart from this statement. But here is something which throws light upon the uh, activities and animosities of the devil. It's disputed about the body of Moses. Why? Well, you're asking me, I don't know. But I do know that on the Mount of Transfiguration there was Moses and Elijah. Of course, some say he wasn't there at all, he was only a vision. But they know, of course, but I don't happen to have been there. It says he saw Moses and Elijah and they both spoke concerning the exodus which Christ was going to accomplish. There's every possibility that Moses was raised from the dead to take part in that great prophetic vision. Anyhow, Michael, he didn't treat cavalierly Satan and brush him aside. He says he durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. You see, it doesn't indicate that you're a very fine fellow and a strong will and you've got great um, powers because you speak evil of everybody, you know. And it doesn't follow that you're a softy because you just are a little bit polite sometimes. I mean, it's only smack. Here's the Michael, Michael, the chief of the angels, in the presence of that fallen spirit. He didn't bring a raiding accusation. He just said, the Lord rebuked thee. But he says, look at these. Then he brings forward another group. Verse 11. Woe unto them. They have gone in the way of Cain. Well, you could stop there for an evening, couldn't you? Of all the potentialities that are in the departure, right at, right at the very gate of paradise, from the way which was indicated that there was no possibility of salvation or forgiveness, which passed by or ignored the shedding of blood. Cain. And ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Why? For reward. Terrible, isn't it? Balaam gives me an opportunity to say, do watch your step-friends and watch other people. Because some of the most awful things and implications can be in these precious words. I'll pray about it. You say, surely you're not going to stop a person doing that. But friends, sometimes I've brought before somebody a plain statement of scripture. And God didn't ask anybody to pray about it. He asked them to believe it. But to say, I'll pray about it means you're going to wriggle out of it. And Balaam, who knew full well that he ought not to go, knew full well that it would be disastrous to go, he said, I'll ask, I'll pray. And God said, all right, you'll go. But you'll only say the words I put in your mouth. Balaam. And then perished in the gainsaying of Korah, who challenged the priesthood. So we've got a, got a character being brought out of the, of the type, the kind of world it will be 
at the second coming. Well, you say we're getting perilously near it. Oh, we are, friends. All the symptoms are there. They're only waiting to come to the surface. These are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water. Carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withering. Without fruit. Twice dead. Plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Then he goes back to Enoch. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. Now, first of all, why does he say the seventh from Adam? I think we ought to find out, don't you? Because that's evidently on purpose. Look right back to the first chapters of the book of Genesis. And the fifth chapter, you read about Enoch. But if you know your Bible, you might remind me, I haven't gone back far enough. So, go back earlier, will you? To the fourth chapter. Verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. So, Cain's first son was named Enoch. And he had a son named Irad. And Irad had Mahujael, Mahujael had Mathusael, and Mathusael had Lamech. Well now, if I turn to chapter 5, I find Enoch. He had a son named Methuselah. And earlier than Enoch, there is one named Jared, which is almost the same as Irad. Don't you see, unless you've got a little guidance, and were told it was the seventh from Adam, you may be barking up the wrong tree and and be listening to what Enoch might have said who was the child of Cain. Now you say, this is not wasting our time. This is symptomatic. All the way through scripture, Satan is not originating things, he's travesting, copying, substituting. He's putting all his ideas and clothing them with scriptural words. You could almost sum up all the activity of Satan in relation to the teaching of Scripture, when he speaks about the Tower of Babel, they had brick for stone. That's it. God's buildings, especially to do with his own worship, they must be stone. Said Babel, believe me, this is just as good. And so many fall for it. So it's the seventh, the seventh from Adam. If we'd have read right through the two epistles of Peter, we should have found that there were eight souls in the ark and Noah was the eighth person. Now certainly he wasn't next to Enoch. There's a great, there's quite a number in between. So we've got now the seventh and the eighth. These are all typical of the place they have in foreshadowing the second coming. Noah is a sort of type of the second man, the last Adam. And he brings in a new world. It's only in type. It was just as bad as the other afterwards. But in type, he comes at the end of one series and starts anew. So now, this Enoch. Enoch is given credit for two prophecies. Let's look at the second one of his 
in this chapter 5 before we turn back to the New Testament once more. It says, verse 25, And Methuselah lived an hundred and eighty and seven years and begat Lamech. And then presently we are told that Lamech had a son and called his name Noah, verse 29, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Here's a man who says, I'm not going to put myself under the protection and the uh, care of these descendants of the other line because they were the inventors of the earth. They were putting a veneer over the curse of the earth so that it wouldn't feel so acute. That's what the inventions are doing all day long making life a bit more tolerable in a world that's under the curse of God. He said, no, I'll look for what this man's going to bring, at least in type. That was Noah. Now, you do know that Methuselah is the man who lived longer than any other man in Scripture. And in verse 27, we are told that he lived 969 years. The name Methuselah means, it's a composite word, at his death, it shall be. What? Well, Enoch didn't tell them. But he says, at his death it was coming. Well, what took place immediately after Methuselah died? Shall we just have a look? He was 969 years when he died. So, would you look at chapter 525 and put this figure down on either in your mind or on a piece of paper? 25. And Methuselah lived in 187 years, 187, until Lamech was born. Then in verse 27, we have another figure. And Lamech lived in 182 years. And then we find in Genesis 7, verse 6, And Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. So, I'm terribly bad at arithmetic, but I do think I've got it right. Two and seven make nine. Eight and eight make sixteen. One and six make seven. One, two, nine. Nine hundred and sixty-nine. The very year that Methuselah died, a flood came. So Enoch's prophecy was fulfilled to the letter in the name that he gave his son. And the scriptures put it down. Now we come back to the book of Jude. And we're going to find something else that is to interest us. Verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied to these, strictly speaking. Our version says, of these. But you say, Enoch couldn't have prophesied to these because he's speaking about the second coming of Christ. How could Enoch prophesy to men that weren't born? Well, I'll admit that's a bit awkward. But it does say so. And you see, one of the things you've got to remember is that we don't know everything yet, not even in the chapel of the open book, we've got to still say, well, let's watch our step and see. Let's go on, see if there's anything further. Saying, Behold the Lord cometh. I don't know whether anyone here has the revised version open, or any other version that gives it the literal rendering, but if they have, they'll discover this that the revised version has put, Behold the Lord came. But now you say, it can't possibly be. Enoch couldn't have said all those years ago, 
that the Lord has already come. But he did, he did say so, friends. It's we've got to revise our thoughts, not Enoch or Jude. But you say, oh, perhaps it doesn't mean cave after all. Well, I'll give you three or four references. And of course, there's any amount of them. Where this, this identical word is translated in this book by the word came and cannot be translated in the other way. 1 John 5, 6. 1 John 5, 6. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Well, I don't think anybody in his senses would say that our Saviour is yet to come in the future by water and blood. That's over, thank God. Or would you look at Ephesians chapter 2, 17. This is only another almost random illustration. Poor old random got in the war, didn't it? They dropped bombs on random, they quoted in the German papers, but we're not quite so bad as that. Ephesians 2, 17. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. Didn't say he's coming in the future to do it. He came and did it. And two, in the first chapter of John's Gospel, I think that will be enough, but I'll give you those. John chapter 1, verse 7. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness. He came. John the Baptist actually came, didn't he? And verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, I don't want to flog a dead horse, as they say. Surely, that ought to make us stop. If that's the word used there, how can it have a meaning? Well, can't you see this? That the second coming of Christ is not an afterthought on God's part. It's an integral part. And what we call the second coming has taken place once before and will take place once again. The whole of the present age in which we live is bounded by a flood. Genesis 1 verse 2, 2 Peter chapter 3. But the flood of 2 Peter chapter 3 is more drastic than ever has taken place before. And then in the middle of it, there's the flood in the days of Noah. Enoch was associated with two floods. He pointed forward to the flood in the days of Noah when his son Methuselah would die. He pointed backward. But where? to what did he point when he pointed backwards? Well, he pointed back to Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth became without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the flood came in the days of Noah. And then it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah, the whole thing is going to be brought out in its vastness and its fullness before the end of time comes. You remember in 2 Peter 3 we read the earth consisting in water and standing out of the water. Difficult passage to translate or to interpret, but it's going back to the same idea that this is there embedded in this thought. So what does this lead us to? This leads us to see that somewhere or another there has been an intervention on the part of God coming down upon evil. And, says Peter, of this they are willingly ignorant of. They are saying, 
that all things continue as they were since the beginning of the creation of God. Of course, they know, don't they? It's easy to say all things have continued since the beginning of the creation of God for nobody listening to you was there at the beginning of the creation of God. It wouldn't do them any harm or us, would it? To refer back to that chapter in the book of Job when he said, and were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? And of course Job would have to say very meekly, no Lord, I wasn't. Oh, I see. Now these men say, we are announcing the philosophic rule this continuity, there's never been any breaking in. What has been shall be. That's almost a scientific statement today. But said the writer, did God not break in when he set the flood in the days of Noah? Did not God break in when he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Has he not broken in when he touched those in the wilderness who murmured and grumbled and tempted him so long? Oh, he said, you'll find there are incidents enough. You're willfully ignorant. You're setting them aside because you're shutting your eyes and you're saying, oh, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. Oh, no, he said. And then he took up the challenge that because the Lord had not immediately executed vengeance on all the wickedness that was rife, he said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering. So I go back to Methuselah. The Lord is long-suffering. If God were swift to take vengeance, instead of Methuselah living the longest life that ever man lived, he did the short one, wouldn't he? At his death, the judgment's coming. And if God were swift to take vengeance, Methuselah would have died a young man. But the man who lived longer than any other man shows that God is not swift to take vengeance. But he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But you cannot trifle with God. There comes a moment. I've quoted the verse before else. Well, but I'll quote it again. He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be cut off from that without remedy. And so we have it, one or two outstanding instances, over and over again. Now you might like to get the two references in the, in the epistles of Peter where it speaks about Noah being the eighth person or the eight souls. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 20. Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 4, where is it now? Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 20, yes. These spirits which are in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God, notice it, it's there, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Saved, eight of them. Then if you'll come to the 2 Peter, chapter 2, just to refresh your memory of what we've read, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 If God spared not the angels that sinned verse 5 And spared not the old world but saved Noah the eighth person the eighth person eight souls Now you can get some fantastic things by adding and subtracting figures and numbers but there is a peculiar character about the scriptures that numbers have a very important meaning 
If you take the names of the sons of Noah and Noah himself, and not only put down the Hebrew letters, but put down the figures the Hebrew letters represent. You see, the letter A represents one, and letter B represents two, the letter G represents three, only they call it Aleph, Beth, Gimel. And then the Greek says Alpha, Beta, Gamma, and we say A, B, C. We don't use the, the letters now, one, two, line three. So A, B, B, A, that's Abba, would be one, two, two, one. That's six, isn't it? You couldn't look at the word Abba if you were a Hebrew without also knowing that it meant six. Well, if you put down all the names of Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and add them up, well, it comes to a, a figure, of course, but it's a figure that doesn't mean anything. Well, he said, why are you telling us all that? Well, Ham, I'm not uh, saying whether he was or not, but he was the dark horse, wasn't he? Ham. Take him out. Now add it up. 800. See? When you've got those there, the true ones, 800. You take the name Jesus. Add it up in the Greek. 800. So you see, there are reasons why these things should be. Many other of this same sort of phenomenon, but still. Now, seven brings you to the end of a series, over and over again. And the eighth day is the first day, like the octave, starting all over again. So Noah was starting all over again. He was, wasn't he? They came out of the ark, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. Many things said of him that were said in a fuller measure of Adam. But of course he was only a type. But a day is coming when it will be the day of God. See, the day of the Lord is the seventh. It is followed by the day of God which comes when the heavens are dissolved and pass away. And then you've got the figure of waiting. For his being preserved. I mean, you might have said to Peter, well, if all this is going to take place, the heavens are going to depart and be dissolved and burned up. Well, where do we come in? He said, oh, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. But how could we? always oh, said, if God could preserve eight souls in a flood, he can preserve you in a fire. He's done it for those of the friends of Daniel. He's done it in the days of Noah. And so we have that emphasis. Then you might be interested to know this, that the word in Genesis 1 verse 2, when it speaks of, of the deep, is the very word that is used in Revelation 20, and there it is, the bottomless pit, or the abyss. So at the beginning and the end, we've got something that could contain and hold in prison. The angels that sinned at the beginning, and the fallen angel, Satan, at the end. The one just as difficult to understand as the other, but both in their right place. Bounding the, as it were, present interval. So there is, now this seems a, a, a little bit of an odd way of putting it, there has been a second coming taken place at the beginning. And there will be a second coming that will take place at the end. That's only a convenient way of saying the same thing will take place once more. He came in judgment on a world that had been ruled by angels that fell and rebelled. He will come again on a world that was still dominated by spiritual powers because you haven't got to read the book of the Revelation without realising 
that there, there are spiritual powers in conflict there, coming to a climax. The kings of the earth may be there, but they are moved by evil spirits. And at last we have the war between Michael and his angels and the devil and his angels. Until the victory is assured. Well then one other feature perhaps demands a little attention. Behold the Lord came in the past, now I'm going to accept that, with 10,000 of his saints. What do you say? The saints couldn't have come because the saints being the Christians. I don't know why we don't say St. Moses, you, or St. David. Oh, I suppose we do say St. David, but he's referring to a Welshman, I think. St. Moses or St. Abraham. People won't, won't do that. It's only Christians that are saints, according to them. There's one passage which has had a lot put upon it in 1 Thessalonians, if you look there. It'll be some long time before we get to 1 Thessalonians 4 in this series. So, I dare say you'll forget all about it by the time I refer to it again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now you'd think people would be logical enough to say, if that refers to the coming of the Lord with his church, all his saints, then you can't be waiting on earth for him, can you? And be there at the same time. You can't be at Euston waiting for the train to come in and at the same time travelling from Edinburgh or Glasgow at the same time, can you? And yet when you're dealing with scriptures, you give up all your common sense and you say, the coming of the Lord with all his saints is my hope. For the more hopeless passage, I don't know. For if he's coming with all his saints and you're waiting on earth for him, you can't be numbered among them. Yet it says in the first chapter, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, who be raised with it, you're waiting for him. And it presupposes in chapter 4 <coughs> that some will be living on the earth for it says, verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we've got to alter the word all. We could say the coming of the Lord with some of his saints because some of his saints will be waiting for it. Well now, supposing this happens to be a quotation from an Old Testament scripture, should we look back at the prophet Zechariah? Chapter 14, verse 5. I think perhaps it wouldn't do us any harm to read verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel, Yea, you shall flee like as they fled from before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. That's the passage that's quoted. The coming of the Lord with all his saints. Now to us, you see, we've limited the word saints to human beings that have believed and become Christians. But the word saints is also used of angels. You get over and over again 
the holy myriads, ten thousand times ten thousand. And so instead of limiting it to just believers in Christ as we understand, this is very parallel to the passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when he picks up the subject again, and he says in verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. This time he calls them angels. The same coming, the same Christ, the same second coming, is accompanied by his saints or accompanied by his mighty angels. Thank God his saints are not going to execute judgment upon other poor sinners that did not believe. So here we have opened up for us this evening, perhaps problematically, rather difficult, some passages that would have to be read and read again and again, but I think it may have put, I hope it has put, the second coming of Christ a bit more in perspective, that it's something that must be to round off the whole purpose of the ages. It came at the beginning, it will come at the end. And as it was in the beginning, so it will be as it ends. Only more so. The anti-Christian element that reaches its climax in the book of the Revelation will gather into itself all the activity of the enemy that's been foreshadowed and developing right through the ages. Isn't it good to know that this epistle of Jude, with its dreadful statements, speaks about those who are preserved in Jesus Christ? Because although we may not live in that day, we are living very near to it, and the same enemy is ours. Or when we get to the end, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you spotless. When all round about you there are spots, when they are spoken of as being twice dead, when they are reserved for them. You see the two words, don't you? Preserved in Jesus Christ reserved unto blackness of darkness. And so we've got the solemn elements introduced and you cannot read the second coming of Christ in Old Testament or in New Testament without being conscious that it's accompanied by that and are surrounded by that which is dreadful in many of its ways. And yet, I won't end on that note. I want to end on that which belongs to ourselves, even though we repeat ourselves again and again before we reach it in due course. I want now to quote from the Epistle of Titus. This may be, as it were, our covering text all the time. Titus chapter 2, verse 9, Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Now what's he talking to servants for, that they could adorn? Well he says, every one of you, whatever capacity you have, you have this blessed right. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us the denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. And I want to lift out the main sentence. The grace of God that saves us, teaches us that we should live looking. That's it. He not only saves us, but teaches us, after we are saved, that we should live 
looking, looking for what? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Now that's the accompaniment, that's the comment made by the Apostle when he speaks about our blessed hope. And you will see that Enoch testified about the ungodliness that surrounded him when he spoke about the second coming of Christ in prospect. Peter speaks about it. Jude speaks about it. The Apostle Paul speaks about it. Our Saviour in Matthew 24 warns about it. And so, let the Lord give us grace to give attentive hearing, so that while we are enamoured and we are comforted by the fact that he who came in loneliness is yet to come in power, may we never belittle the fact that before that day comes, there will be such a pandemonium on the earth that some men, we are told, look for death and cannot find it. May God give us grace that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Or as Peter puts it, what manner of persons ought we be who have such a preservation and have such surroundings. Now next time we meet together we'll pick up our story with another old and ancient witness and discover that in the book of Job there are anticipations of the coming of Christ in the yet future. But of course that will have to be postponed till we meet together next time.